Hello, and welcome to the Burning Castle podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Rinsberg. Each episode, I speak with a changemaker learning to unlock the creative potential of a world caught in chaos. These are the artists, actors, performers, musicians, designers, thinkers, entrepreneurs, filmmakers, activists, chefs, and countless others creating new paths amid crumbling institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Burning Castle and on Instagram at Burning Castle Podcast. Today's guest is David Francis, who is a novelist, and that's why he's joined me on the podcast. But David is more than a novelist. He is also a noted lawyer. He is on the board of Penn, um, the, the organization that helps authors and writers and journalists protect their rights around the world. And David also was a, an athlete. He was a show jumping, a horse show jumping athlete for many, many years, which he considers to be his, his first passion. The interesting thing about David is that he had a full career as a lawyer for prestigious firms in California, and he worked on his literature on the side. And that's something that I think we all need to consider as creatives, as independent creatives, as creativepreneurs, whatever you want to think about yourself as. Sometimes it's not only that we have to do something that is not our so-called passion, but in fact, it's better to do something else for money or in other cases, not only for money, but because you have other interests and we're not just one thing. I know in my career, I was sort of wedged into this notion of one-itis, which is something the literary establishment loves to teach you about, which is that you can only do one thing, stay in your lane. If you are a genre writer, you're going to be a genre writer forever. And don't you dare write a self-help book. Or if you are a painter or anything else in the world, generally people want you to optimize for more and more success and use the compound effect um, that will help you catapult yourself to more to more successes and greater heights. But the fact of the matter is that we are not a financial instrument that compounds. That's not what a human being is. And it's not what an independent creative person is either. So that's where we can learn a lot about David Francis and how he has approached his writing career. He started off quite late in his career as a writer. Another thing the literary establishment does not like a, a naughty, no-no type thing. Um, but he did it anyways. And he has been very, very successful. The Washington Post called The Great Inland Sea, one of his novels, a bowl of ripe cherries, graceful and unaffected. We should be grateful for stories of this scale crafted by writers of this skill. And the San Francisco Chronicle wrote that David Francis may not be a poet, but he sure writes like one. His prose is lean but dreamy, full of sensual detail. It's all done with skill and elegance. That, I think, really sums up David as a person, at least what I was able to get from him in our conversation. He is clearly a craftsman. Um, but there's an elegance to his personality as well, which is something that is very, very refreshing. He's not pushing anything on anyone. He's merely offering. And that's another thing I think we can all keep in mind is that you don't have to make what you do for everyone. You can simply offer it to the world as a gift and let it be that. So without further ado, I will turn you over to the episode 
Uh, check out David Francis's work. His books are The Great Inland Sea, Agapanthus Tango, and Stray Dog Winter, three incredible titles. And they're all on their way to me right now to Israel, so I can read them. Um, he's also got short fiction. And also, as you'll hear in the interview, do give a look to Penn, the writer, the writer's um support and advocacy organization that does very important work around the world. So David Francis, thank you so much for joining me here on the Burning Castle podcast. Um, For anyone who can't see David, he is in the most classic of all writers, Garrett's up in an attic. So um, I won't filibuster the beginning of the of this episode. I'll turn it over to you, David, just to give a little bit more background than than the formal introduction that we just heard. Tell us just the the basics, the fundamentals about who you are and what you do. Well, I'm essentially a kid from the country in Australia, um, where I've just returned from the farm where I grew up, uh, that my sister now runs, which is. Um, kind of a horse situation. And I grew up doing that. And I rode show jumping horses, which is an odd kind of sport for Australia internationally in the um, 70s and 80s. And um, and then um, I was a, I'm a lawyer by trade. I've recently retired from uh, a law firm called Norton Rose Fulbright, which is a big international firm where I did public finance, which is financing schools and hospitals and universities. Um, I started writing in the maybe mid nineties, um, and my uh, first novel came out in the early two thousands. And I have three novels in the world, and a new one um, that uh, I recently finished. And and I am am involved with Penn International, the Freedom of Expression organization, which um, defends uh, writers throughout the world and. Um, I'm on the board of Penn International and have also been involved with Penn America here in the States. And I'm currently in LA, in Hollywood, looking out my attic window into the rain, into the Hollywood Hills and delighted to be here with you, Ashley. Thank you. Um, so, you know, I've got a, f- a few questions. A big one is how you, how and why you got into writing as someone who was trained in law, who had um what sounds like by all measures, a, a very successful career in that field. And there's sort of a sort of this intersection of two questions that I have, but at the heart of it is the question of why, um, why would anyone want to be a writer? It's a question that I ask myself every day, <laughs> um, struggling in this field that is so filled with struggle and with some of the stories of the most successful um, by literary standards are those who struggled the hardest. And we've kind of lionized, we've made myths of Dostoevsky or whoever working his fingers to the bone in Siberia in order to carry out this noble craft of his. So why did you do it? Why do you do it? Uh, Growing up, in the boonies in Australia, I always secretly wanted to be a writer. I don't know. I don't know why I didn't study journalism or creative writing. Not that that was really on the radar. I studied law because it was a way to make a living. I was never passionate about it. What I was passionate about, passionate about was the sport I did. Um, and so I accidentally became uh, a lawyer and worked for a firm in Australia and then got on a team to ride jumping horses in in Europe and then washed up here in the States. So I, I never loved being a lawyer and I always used it as a vehicle to be able to afford to do other things. Um, and the gift of that has, it's been, it's allowed me to afford to write what I like, what I want to write, what I'm passionate about and not really be a gun for hire. So I, I have written strange, somewhat unusual fiction uh, that I have have loved doing. And so I fought for the time to write as a lawyer. And when I got that window where I was able to, I was usually in, in a place where my subconscious mind had been preparing me to, um, to put something on a page. And um, 
I'm grateful for that. It's only now, having retired from the law, that I'm doing some editing work where I'm working with other writers and um, but still doing my own stuff. So I still have a passion about writing fiction and I don't resent it. And um, it's it seems to me kind of a, I kind of hate the word gift, but it's a gift for me to be able to to do that and um, pursue that in in whatever way it unfolds for me. It's an interesting model, or the one the one that you pursued. It's you know, it's you're, you're by no means the a solitary figure who's kind of went down that path of a profession to pay the bills, to more than pay the bills, to establish establish a livelihood, a life, um, something that will carry you through and support the art. Um, you know, it's I, I think of um, Trollope, Anthony Trollope. I'm reading right now, who was. Postmaster General of the of England, or the you know pre-United Kingdom, and wrote in the mornings and did it religiously and was prolific and you know in my opinion genius. Or uh, more recently, Amor Towles, who was a, I believe an investment banker, it might have been private equity, but I think an investment banker who was sort of a, a, a bit of a wonder kind in fiction, left fiction to go into banking and finance, and then sort of returned to fiction more recently after a 30-year-long career. Um, and it's a very interesting pathway, but I imagine, and I've been on that pathway myself um, in some regard, I would say probably less successful than other, some others, including you, in both tracks, in both the fiction and the uh, professional track. But it comes with a certain amount of hardship, I would imagine. I've, I would, I felt, I feel that it comes with a certain kind of tension that you are doing this other thing in your life that you don't fully believe in and you don't fully trust. Is, is that something you experienced and if it is, how did you deal with that tension if you felt it? Um, I think that pursuing a career that isn't a passion does take an emotional toll. And over, you know, I did that for three decades. And what I was eventually able to do was create a gig where I had some flexibility. I came in originally taking a fair amount of time away to do a sport, and then I morph that into taking a fair time away to travel doing uh writers retreats and i would i got you know i took would take a month off and go to the there's a place called hawthorne and castle in scotland where i got a fellowship and i did six months in paris at the cite des arts where i got a an australian writing residency so i was i was paid less than i was worth to the law firm but they charged me out at a pretty high rate so the i was able to establish an equation that kind of gave me some flexibility. And so it wasn't quite as um, soul destroying as it otherwise might have been, but still it took its toll. Um, I weirdly was able to switch even in my office from drafting documents and then going into the world of my fiction quite readily. And I don't know whether that's um, a function of some kind of ADHD or something, but I, I do remember my first novel, um, my boss, who was quite supportive, I will say, um, suggested should be called On Company Time, was her suggested <laughs> title for my novel, because it was kind of known that I, that I had this other life and that I, you know, that I was pursuing it and that was my real passion. And without the writing, I, I don't think I could have ever done that. And I'd also add that I did this sport that was highly... Um, adrenalized sounds like a very american word but there was a mm -hmm. lot of adrenaline involved and sort of expectation and disappointment and traveling and i would jump on a plane and go to palm beach in florida and i was sponsored and would ride these horses and come back and that world was i i didn't sleep and it was there was a lot of danger involved and then i got to a space where actually i was in therapy and my therapist asked you know what are you truly What's your true passion if you if you wanted to be a little bit still? Um, and and that was writing. And mm. uh, so I I got brave enough to to do that, you know, terrified that I wouldn't be wouldn't be good. Um, but 
you know, whether I'm good or not, that's what I need and want to do with my life. So that first novel, um, it's, it sounds like you're already into your law career at that point. And how did it happen? How did you, where did the seed come from? How did you accept that, that this was the particular pathway? Because writing can take many forms. It could have been stories. It could have been po poetry. It could have been any, any number of things, memoir. You chose a novel, which in my mind and in my experience, my personal experience, is the most difficult choice. I've done various kinds of writing. A novel sucks you dry and then some. So how did you get to that point? And how, did you grapple with it? Was it a natural choice? Did you have to come to terms? What was it like? And how did you come to the idea for what this novel would be about and what it would be in the world? Uh, I didn't consciously choose that genre. I, I just started writing and it emanated originally from when I was maybe 19, I was at law school in Australia and I worked with horses about 70 miles from my law school and my grandmother had gone blind and lived in a facility. She was 98. Um, and I would visit her every day between my um, horse farm job and law school and sit with her. And she had grown up in the outback of Australia in the 1880s. Um, her mother was from Salzburg in Austria and her father was a feckless Scot and had, it's funny, I haven't told this story for such a long time, but he, he met her when she was singing um, as a young opera singer in Vienna and mm, wow. swept her off her feet and took her to the outback of Australia to a place that was a hundred square miles in the middle of nowhere. And she had these kids in this mud brick house and the Aboriginal tribes warring at the bottom of the garden. So my <laughs> grandmother would tell me these stories um, and I, I wrote them down and I thought one day I would like to write about this. And so it wasn't, you know, for another 20 something years um, or 20 years um, that I, I started playing with that idea. And I, I got into a writing group um, with a writer called Les Plesko, uh, who was uh, a really great um, novelist and editor underpublished, but had a, a, a following here. And I was told that if, if he likes your work, he, he'll invite you to his private workshop. And I think I probably would have written myself into oblivion <laughs> if I hadn't found myself there. But I wrote in a kind of organic fashion, um, not knowing whether it was going to be stories or a novella or a short story or what, what it was going to be. But I was just writing this story in a very kind of almost unconscious way it was sort of flowing through me from from genera other generations of my family it was kind of a bleed through and um that that great grandmother whose story it's a little bit based on um the sense was that she was jewish and that she was um had ended up in this very alien environment um during the war so i i, I melded some of my experience and some of her experience and my grandmother's experience in what became um, Agapanthus Tango. Uh, and then just to add on to that, I sat with a woman at, at, at a dinner party um, who represented a, um, a, a number of writers and directors. And um, she's oddly Paul Verhoeven's who just has a movie out called Benedetta. That's about a lesbian, lesbian nuns in the, 1300s mm -hmm. anyway I, I became friendly with her and she's she, i got brave enough eventually to tell her that i was writing something and i sent it to her and she sent it to an agent in london that she worked with and um a week later there was a bidding war for it in london mm -hmm. with um between picador and and fourth estate harper collins which was this amazing thing i mean it's sort of been all down since then but that, <laughs> that that was sort of a, a miraculous confluence of events mm -hmm. How old were you at that time? Just out of just to place you in uh, in time. I probably two thousand. I would have been early forties. Two thousand one. Yeah. So that must have been. I mean, it's such an interesting thing to come into the to 
particularly fiction, because usually people start very young in fiction when they they succeed, they they're on that path, they're on a track, like in most careers and professions they go to the school the mfa programs and then they go to the journals and they get the agent and blah 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 so this was a quite a different path and i imagine there must have been a very validating experience to write the book that came from somewhere not somewhere almost genetic um and then to have it picked up in such a fashion it really must have been something nourishing it was i mean it was kind of extraordinary but also it was weird because here i was with my life in the us and this book was published in various languages published in australia and you know holland and italy and uh germany and um france and and the uk and and elsewhere and but in America, it wasn't it wasn't picked up for another five years, mm. uh, and uh, it that that was that was a strange experience. Yeah, um, not to feel. I felt like I'm I, I'm a writer, but I'm not a writer in America. So in my mm. own yeah. life, um, it I didn't quite inhabit it. It seemed like something that was happening far away, mm-hmm. and yet on the strength of that, I was able to. Um, you know, I got this fellowship to um, Paris for six months where the, the Australian Literature Fund sends an Australian writer to this garret in, in the Marais in Paris, which was amazing. And this whole, and I thought, I'm never going to have to go back to law after this. I can't stand it. Um, and I just, I just thought of a, um, how my novel got published in, in France was um, I had a foreign rights agent in London who sent this book to an editor at um, Edition du Soi, which is a, a a really good house in Paris. And she had asked him if I was writing something else. And that agent hadn't responded to her, but I had met someone in Paris who I'd given my card to that had um, the name of the novel on it and the cover of the novel on this card. He was a translator and he happened to be on the train with this um, editor this French editor, and he opened his wallet and he, she saw that card and she was like, oh my God, I saw, I love that book. I oh. heard back from them. Nothing ever came of that. Um, and then by the end of that day, I had a publishing deal in, wow. in France, which was like one of those weird serendipitous things. Um, yeah. It's, it, it, you know, it's one, it's one of these things that it seems ser- serendipitous. It seems lucky. But I feel like there's also an element of of um, some karmic element of luck, where you're putting action into the world, you're putting energy into the world. You're in, you're at the dinner party, you're in Paris. It, you know, it wasn't blind luck. There was there was some intention behind it that was your doing, that somehow something in the world reciprocated. So you know, I, I feel like that's. Um, because I think to a lot of people hearing a story like that, it's like, well, why can't I just get lucky like that? But the, <laughs> there's much more to it than that. I think that's really true. I think um, being someone who's bold enough to go and, I mean, I think there's sort of chutzpah behind the luck. There's um, mm-hmm. this sort of being out in the world and and meeting people and being able to talk about what you're doing and can, making connections and um allowing manifestation in a way with, with a kind of intention. Yeah. I, right. I, I think that's true. Yeah. Right. So you have the first novel um, out in the world, just not in your part of the world, um, which is actually something I hear and I've, I've paid attention to that you know, a friend of mine, who's actually French um, was asking me if I've read, I, I can't even remember the name of the author. And I said, I haven't heard of this guy. And he was absolutely gobsmacked that I'd never heard of this world famous. And he wasn't even a French author. I think he was a, a, a Italian Jewish author who is like the big guy in France that nobody in America has ever heard of. It's, it's one of these weird things that just, you know, you, these weird angles of literature that something works in France has no appeal in the U.S. What works in the U.S. has no appeal um some other place it's just the strange kind of array of international taste but for you this was working and 
that how did that roll into the next book and the next book after that how did you was it just saying to yourself okay great things are moving along Let, let's think about the next idea or was it you know was there more to it than that um it's funny that you say the word idea i i feel as though and this always sounds suspect but i feel like i don't write from a conscious idea mm. i write I write a scene that I see mm-hmm. and allow it sort of organically to inform and unfold into the next scene. And if I, if I have a, a, this great idea and I, I'm trying to write from A to B, I feel like I'm engineering a story that may want to go to Q, you know? And if I can get out of the way of my conscious engineering loyally structuring mind something more original might emerge and for my second novel which i started as i recall in during that gig in paris um because i'd finished my first book then i um i started writing a story of a kid a young guy a young australian artist who was heading to moscow on a train from prague and i had done that when i was um maybe 23 or something and it was still the soviet era and i'd taken photos out of the train window um knowing that you weren't supposed to take photos of telecommunications or um infrastructure but i was taking pictures of horse drawn hay carts and women in the fields with scythes and it felt very um kind of turgenev um the, the turgenev wrote a a book called the hunter's album or the hunter's tales or something that was very um sort of rural russia in the in mm. the 1800s and it felt very much like that anyway i essentially got arrested when i landed in 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 moscow because i'd taken these photos and i was telling that story um in a novel setting and then i was also writing about a kid growing up in australia and i had these two what i thought might have been two different novels one a sort of suspense emotional love story um that was happening in in Soviet Moscow um at the end of Andropov early Chernenko very repressive time and this other Australian story and they eventually married into what became um Stray Dog Winter um which was my second novel it's a really interesting point um to think about over engineering a novel you know because there's i think along the spectrum of how someone could write a novel on the one hand you have something that's very free and free flowing structurally and then on the extreme opposite end you have something that's much closer to um a crime novel crime fiction or a thriller that's very engineered and you know i feel like people try to put themselves somewhere along that spectrum or or generally they go one side or the other um and i know that's something that i've grappled with how to place myself um and probably thinking too much about it because you know you start to think about the audience because you start to think about how is this ever going to sell because you're thinking about how am i ever going to make a living doing this <laughs> and that comes back to what you were talking about having a career which kind of you know has its own burdens but frees you from that other thing where you don't need to calculate how is this book going to earn me a living so i can live a decent lifestyle is that is it something you feel like um you gained from from the the path that you took yes um i believe it's what certainly given me the freedom and it's not like i mean i've sold in various countries um but it takes me 5 years to write a novel the way i that I work. So it, I could have lived off that nicely for a year right. but um amortized over 5 years that's not a great living. But you yeah. use the word thinking and I think thinking is maybe um not always an asset. Mm. Certainly for yeah. me when I get into my thinking mind I get out of my unconscious mind and if I write anything decent it's usually in my half sleep long hand when I first wake up in the morning mm. when I'm when i'm in that sort of dreamscape world and um i try and write from my, more from my body mm. than from my mind if that makes sense um yeah. i work with people and 
a bit writers and introduce them to their work through um, through meditation to try and get into that sort of sensory detail that um, what do they call it the vivid continuous dream excuse the dings <laughs> that's the meditation gong uh, of the digital era um, so so how does that work how do you write from that that place how do you get to that place and how do you write from that place because as i as i had just mentioned the writing that i have done um for the for the novel that i wrote recently was very thought through planned out meticulous and this is not these are these are not ways of praising myself i'm not really sure that that was the best way so how do you do it and how does it and how do you know you're doing that in a way that makes sense i i believe i try to be to inhabit my body and be in in the present in a way that i'm not um distracted by the world as much and can begin to inhabit the story and dream around inside the story and in my mind's eye see see a room see an expression smell get the details in a way that i'm not coming at it from the outside i'm not imposing my intellectual mind on the story but allowing it to emanate from a more organic place and i learned that through that first novel that was sort of bubbling up through my dna you know um so it's a, it's a strange adventure and it takes a lot of getting out of my head mm. um and being getting out of my head space that's trying to trying to make sense of everything and control the narrative and trying to get it to where i think it's supposed to be um but just inhabiting a story and allowing it to unfold and trusting that i might be riding into some box canyon that i'll need to throw stuff away but something in that work will inform something else and a sentence or a word there's a book by a woman called annie dillard called the writing life Mm-hmm. that that um talks a lot about this as a way of writing but as you say if you're writing with a deadline um or very specific goals or something imposed it's it's a risky way to do it and i you know i'm friends with jane smiley here in california who's a mm-hmm. pulitzer prize winning american yep. writer and she would never go leave the gate until she knew um exactly where she was going and now mm-hmm. i was on with a panel once with um Colm Toybean, the wonderful mm-hmm. Irish writer who lives yep. in New York, and Anne, whose last name escapes me, who just won the Booker Prize. And they were coming at this equation from two totally different perspectives, both wonderful writers. So I think it's a mm-hmm. little bit how you're wired in the brain. And I think it's hard to become one if you're not, if you're, if you're the other, but I think you can meld those worlds um, somewhat. I also think that my loyally structured mind works in the background without me being so aware of it to provide some underlying structure. Mm. And um so I think sort of a, some poet some poets and writers that I know who live totally in the sort of ethereal um wifty world it's harder for them to to stay on a track working in that fashion. Uh yeah that's interesting it's a bit of a, it's a bit inverted from what you would normally think you would think normally that it's the conscious mind driving the process and the unconscious mind shaping it in the background for you it sounds it's a bit uh, upside down you know from from the rest of us it's your unconscious mind leading the way and you in the conscious intentional piece that's kind of in the background shaping things putting scaffolding around it as you go um very interesting so it's a matter of accessing that unconscious mind and that right. that's the top the top but most interesting part to me yeah that you know that's something that um i i loved so much about uh writers of the early 20th century the surrealists um henry miller you know in his big tomes and the rosy crucifixion it's just this incredible it, it's not even stream of conscious it's it's stream of unconscious is deeper than that it's it, you know and it takes you along and you're somehow 
captured by it. It's the weirdest thing. It shouldn't really work, but it does. Um, so what are you what are you doing now? You've retired from your law profession from your from your day job. Um, where does that leave you? I mean, you working a job like that is very structured. I'm, it structures your time, especially with the law, because you're billing hours. Um, and now your your interaction with time, I'm assuming, is a bit different. And also with the writing because of that, because you don't have that narrow kind of window to work in. You've got more. So how, what does your day look like and what does the writing look like on account of that? My day is is freer, I will admit that. Um, I have taken on some editing jobs where I'm editing novels for, for writers um, mm. and uh, that gives me some structure and something just to go to that feels like work. Um, but I've been getting up in the morning and getting on a meditation with a bunch of poets um, and then writing from a prompt um, sort of freehand and seeing where that takes us. And then we read whatever poems we've written. And that's a really interesting skill for me to write in the moment with these accomplished poets where, mm -hmm. you know, that's not what I am. Um, uh and we oddly just have a little uh, collection that's come out just yesterday called Slow Lightning Impractical Poetry that has grown out of that, that group, which is, mm, which is a amazing little project. Um, I'm also very involved with um, Penn International, so getting writers out of Myanmar and Afghanistan and Belarus, and so this protection of writers um, and writers in prison for who have written um, politically in the wrong, you know, in the wrong part of the world. Um, so I'm involved with that and freedom of expression. And as a lawyer, I help out that organization that's based in London um, with some legal legal stuff um, and some of the um, more technical aspects. So that sort of exercises my legal mind a little bit. Um, and I'm basically feeling freer to write what I write, and I'm writing a fourth novel. No, I'm not. I'm writing a fifth novel. Um, and it's amazing to me that I could even imagine in my life that I would be thinking about writing a fifth novel. I mean, I, I, I guess I'm in my early 60s and time has passed, but to imagine that I would have a, a little group of books behind me is, mm. is, is astonishing. So I'm writing a very Australian novel, having just finished a very LA novel. Um, so a very contemporary LA novel, um, which is now uh, I'm looking for a new agent because I feel like my existing agent wasn't really suited to this, this work. So um, I'm in the throes of that and just working on something new and having fun with it. And I meet with my writing group every week on Zoom and we read our stuff to each other. Um, Janet Fitch, who's an American writer who wrote White Oleander, which was a, a big book mm. here and sold. Yeah. So it was an Oprah book and sold in yeah. 20 something languages. And, and a Dylan film, Landis, I believe. And a film, yeah. yeah. Um, and Dylan Landis, who's a, uh, a wonderful writer out of New York, um, a short story writer mostly. And anyway, we read our stuff to each other and then we, respond in the moment um and so that's a weekly practice that sort of keeps me um nudging me forward like i need some pages for the group and then i have some responses from the group to keep me going and just to follow up on what you said earlier thinking of uh, um thinking of henry miller um i don't write i don't write big woolly wonderful books i write quite spare Mm. And a lot of work is editing, although my original effort on the page um, would come from that process. I do a lot of turning before I go forward. So I make sure what's behind me, whether or not I jettison it, jettison it, it in the end, I, I have to feel like it's in good shape before I move forward because it will tell me where I'm supposed to go. And if I write a, a shitty first draft, as they say, mm -hmm. I feel like I can just trail off into something ordinary when if it's honed enough, it can be, <clears throat> excuse me, it can be, um, it can fashion a form that will take me forward. So at this point in your career where you're, you're on your fifth book and you're able to look back a bit, um, 
is there anything you would tell your younger, just starting out self at, at any age, whether you were just starting out with that first novel or before that, you know, and, and I'm asking this question, by the way, asking you what you would tell a younger writer um, who's grappling with this stuff, where, where, how would you guide them? Because uh, to return to how I opened this conversation, it's a difficult, it's a difficult craft. It's difficult in and of itself. It's difficult to do it well. It's difficult to live by doing it. And it's difficult to live with it, I think, in, in a way. It's difficult to live with the process of being a writer and of writing and how it affects yourself, how it affects people around you. So within that framework, is there something that you would tell that younger you? I mean, I feel quite emotional when I hear that question because it is, it's such a struggle. And there's part of me that want, would want to recommend don't quit your day job, which is what my first editor in London said, because I thought, here I am, you know, it's <laughs> going to change my life. And, yeah. and in a way yeah. it did. But then there's another part of me that wants to say, quit your day job and pursue this passion. But it's so scary um, yeah. and lonely. So I think what I would recommend um, and I did this, and so it's this isn't really t talking to my younger self, but I would recommend finding people in the world who can support this creative part of you. Um, other writers, like I would go to um, readings and then I would make friends with writers and become part of a world. I joined Penn, um, which is a group of writers, so that, and I went to Penn events, so that I had a a support network of people who were mm. experiencing the world in the same way, yeah. because there's some nothing more dis, soul destroying than reading for me, reading my first chapter to my family and just seeing them look at me in back in Australia on the farm, look at me kind of stony faced and vaguely horrified. And, and, <laughs> um, and, and that, so it's about having support and I think being in being with a group, if you can, that you trust, that yeah. is um, that is nurturing, and um, or, you know that's direct enough and real. I mean, in my group now, we're very direct, and we go we cut straight to the chase. But I think to be around people who are creative and nurturing, and sort of and artists, mm -hmm. um, and finding a world where that can contain the. Um, the anxieties and the loneliness and the struggle of choosing that path. Um, but I feel like if, if writing is what, if you're a writer, it's, it's kind of what you have to do. If you're called to do it, that's what you do. And however you orchestrate it with survival, you know, whether you marry someone who's well healed mm -hmm. or you, you know, you apply for these fellowships and, um, I, you know, I was lucky that I, I got some of those and I felt a bit guilty about getting them because I wasn't a writer in as much financial need, but I was a writer who needed a space and a place and a world where I could explore, explore what I was doing on the page. So I think there are many ways to skin the cat. Um, I would say just to my younger self as a writer, be kind and be patient. Someone, um, someone said to me, um, when I published in the UK and elsewhere, she said, um, it'll probably take about five years for you to be published here. And I was like, you know, screw that. I'm, I'm going to get, I'll get published before then. And it took five years, you know, it took five years for me to have a publisher in Australia. And then, um, and then also not to have expectations. Expectations are the seeds of disappointment and resentment. Mm. Mm. So just, be for me to be where I am on that page in that scene and fully realize that without getting into the mishigas of what's next, who's going to read this, how's it going to get published, what do I have to do, but then also being out in the world where you're meeting people and cross-pollinating and becoming known and doing what you're doing. I mean, doing a blog, um, um, you know, being participating in the literary world one way or another is also mm -hmm. I think helpful and not everyone has the the ability to do that um. 
Yeah, there's um, Seth Godin, who is a a marketing guru who became a philosopher in my mind, who I quote, I quote quite often. He said, if you start to organize people in your field, in your area, then the powers that be will take notice. And it can be simple. It can be a, a writing group, uh, like what you've done with the poetry, um, where there's a cluster, that's where it, it draws energy. It's like a, you know, a, a heavenly body, the, the bigger, the more gravity it has. And um, another thing that I've spoken about here before is this idea called senius, which is the genius of having a scene, a, a group of people together, which is something I think Brian Eno um, coined where we see with Andy Warhol, Warhol wasn't Warhol. Warhol was the factory. Warhol was the scene. He was the culture around him. Um, and I think that's very important. I think that's something that is connected also to place, you know, and I know that in my case, I, I here in Israel have not connected with it for whatever reason. Um, and it's, I think it's a big blind spot for me and I can feel it. It's not that it's a blind spot career-wise, professionally, which probably it is, but emotionally is the bigger point. You miss the gratification of doing what you're doing if you're not sharing it with other people who are doing it. Um, I think that's an excellent point for people to keep in mind. Um, so, you know, before we wrap up, I want to ask a little more about Penn. It's a very important organization there are not that many organizations that are standing up for the rights and the freedoms of writers around the world. Um, it's certainly the, the sort of um, doing it uh, in the uh, par excellence fashion, doing the best, the best way that anyone does that. How can people support Penn? How can we support writers who are being detained, who are being muzzled, who are being abused and oppressed? Because it's hard for most of us to imagine, people listening to this, it's almost impossible to imagine. But that is a very, it's a very regular occurrence in many places around the world. It's sort of the default. If you speak out of turn, as writers are known to do, you face reprisals and consequences. So how can we support Penn? How do we get involved? How do we learn? How do we get involved with that mission? Yeah, we forget what a luxury it is to be able to sit in our spaces and write what we like, when we want to, how we want to, and yeah. disseminate it how we want to. And so it's so easy to forget that there are writers in parts of the world that are being persecuted for what they write. Journalists, um, you know, you think about the, the number of journalists in Mexico who have been assassinated. Um, and now, you know, these writers, women writers in Afghanistan um, under that new regime. And, um, you know, we have on the board a um, of Penn International, uh, a writer from Myanmar who was in prison for five years. Our new Penn International president is a guy called Burhan Somnes, who is published in 27 languages or something, and is Kurdish, but lives in Turkey, um, is actually is now at Cambridge, but he, he was um, tortured by the, the Turks for um, part of his work as a Kurdish writer. So that there are, there are these risks in, that are involved in writers. And as writers of some privilege, I think it's, it behooves us to, to be aware of them and then support them and support freedom of expression generally. So it's, totally easy to sign up onto the Penn International website or the Penn America website. Um, Penn International oversees 150 Penn centers all around the world in some in, in indigenous languages and um, uh, in troubled parts of the world and in uh, other parts of the world. So go to the website, see how you can donate. You can become a, a writer. You can join the writer circle for a certain amount of donations. Um, a certain level of donation. Um, there are all sorts of opportunities to be supported in your local Penn Center, wherever you are in the world, and in through Penn International, which is the the main um, center of the organization out of London. So, Amazing. Yes, please do it. I personally will do it, Penn Israel. Um, and um, I encourage everybody else to do the same. And, and even if you don't 
have the ability to donate right now, just go check out the website and get on Twitter and find those writers. I just wrote a piece about Nicaragua where journalists are being thrown into prison left, right, and center by, by the, the Sandinistas who had freed that country from the former t- dictatorship and now just have become a copy-paste version of that, of the thing that they despised. Um, it's all around us. So it's something we absolutely need to pay attention to. It feels like it's a bygone thing. It's something, a relic from a bygone era. It's absolutely not. This stuff happens every single day. So um, thank you for that. So um, where can we find you online or anywhere else in the real world? If that's where, you're, where we should find you. I feel like I've a little bit retreated from the real world. Um, I I do have a, a website, David Francis Writer. Dot com. I'm I'm on Instagram at a David Francis Writer, um, but I've retreated from that somewhat. I'll probably get heated up again as I have a new book out uh, and get more immersed in that world. But feel free to contact me through my website if you would choose, if you so choose. Um, and I'm happy. I'm happy to um, to make contact and happy to um, discuss any of this or with writers and work with writers. Um, in in ways of getting into that uh, vivid continuous dream, as I call it, um, and or to edit um, and chat and be part of the the global um, community of writers. That's an amazing offer. So thank you, David. Um, I'm sure some some of the listeners will take you up. And um, last question: Which of your books do you think is the best entry point into your work? Which is the most um, what you would recommend as someone who's just starting out reading you? Um, I would say Wedding Bush Road, which was my last book, might be the most accessible. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the Great Inland Sea, the first book, is uh, a little more challenging in some ways. Um, not that that's a bad thing. Um, and and then the Stray Dog Winter is a sort of literary suspense novel. So it mm. depends what you're drawn to. I would just check them out and see what resonates. Amazing. Thank you very much, David. It's been a great conversation. I've taken away a lot from it and um, I hope to stay in touch. Thank you. It's a pleasure, Ashley. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining me today on the Burning Castle podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Ashley Rinsberg, A-S-H-L-E-Y-R-I-N-D-S-B-E-R-G. And follow the podcast on Twitter at Burning Castle and on Instagram at Burning Castle Podcast. Till next time.